One of the phases they're about to go into is referred to as the slaughter phase. So this is when they're actually finding uh, honeybee colonies that they have decided they are going to absolutely slaughter. And you can get anywhere between two or 20 to 30 hornets that will go in and just start decapitating honeybees. Visits by 20 to 30 hornets usually result in deaths of 5,000 to 25,000 bees during one to six hours. Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, a podcast where we digest research articles and findings from trade magazines pertaining to the green industry and regurgitate them for you. And this week, we're going to talk about the Asian giant hornet, commonly referred to as the murder hornet in the media, and plant gutation. Now, before we talk about what plant gutation is and how it's not actually a process by which you gut a plant in order to uh, stuff it like they do in animal taxonomy. Yeah. Or the taxidermy. It's not, it's not a taxidermying technique for plants. No. Is that right? No. No, it's not. Okay. It's not. It's, it's more like it's, it's wetter than that. <laughs> so it's not a good description. You know, there was this funny meme uh, that I saw recently that is a um, Hunger Games meme and it's like, Welcome to the final quarter of 2020. May the odds be forever in your favor. <laughs> you know, and it just like makes you think of uh, all the things that's happened in the year 2020. One of them being, you know, this uh, news that had come out about the murder hornets several months ago, uh, you know, maybe in the second quarter, if not the first quarter of 2020. And, you know, the actual term for it is Asian giant hornet. Now, they're called murder hornets, not, not necessarily because of how many people they murder, although... They, they do cause some um, human mortality, but they cause a whole lot of honeybee mortality. They kill honeybees like crazy. And uh, there's been quite a bit of effort in Washington state to do some trapping for these hornets and some recent uh, research that's looking at their potential spread throughout the world, really, with a focus on North America, because uh, that is where we are. Mm -hmm. They use this technique called, uh, as, as a part of it, you know, when you're trying to look for the distribution of a potential invasive insect, you can do what's called like climate matching. So you can kind of look at uh, where its distribution is in its native habitat, and then uh, look in your new habitat and see what types of climates would be kind of similar to where it is natively. And what they're finding so far is that hopefully this, this hornet's range might be relatively limited to northwestern part of the U.S., and the eastern coast. Okay. Here in Texas, like maybe East Texas-ish might be a part of that range. But but they do need like this cooler, uh, occasional cooler weather. They do also need it to be wet. So a lot of central U.S. is considered uh, non-ideal habitat. Mind you, stuff surprises us all the time, <laughs> right? Like we don't know for sure. That's yeah. true. But, but it's considered non-optimal habitat for these hornets. And uh, it's kind of neat. So right now in Washington state, if you're in, in Washington, you can uh, trap for these as a part of a citizen science project. Hmm. So uh, the Washington state department of agriculture has both a video and DIY instructions. They do warn you to set up these traps at your own risk, right? Because you are basically trapping for 
Asian giant hornets. Murder hornets. <laughs> yeah. You're <laughs> your luring murder hornets into your backyard. So it does to come with a home. bit of a disclaimer, mm-hmm. but you'd be helping greatly in tracking where they, they do think there are potentially some nests actually there in Washington because they have actually caught some live ones and they're catching them in these traps as well. So they're trying to kind of triangulate their position and find where they are so that they can uh, eradicate them from, from the U S before they really establish and or continue to spread. So that's an interesting thought then, because how, you know, this, this is maybe a, a vague question or hard, a hard question to answer, but how quickly are, are we talking like, like how quickly if they aren't on top of this, could this get out of control? I think so. Uh, you know, there's two kind of answers to that, right? Well, like one depends on um, what we know about the dispersal ability of this actual Hornet, right? So based on what we know, this study seems to think that this species could reach Oregon in about 10 years oh, and wow. Eastern Washington slash British Columbia in about 20 years. So that's, you know, we're talking about quite a bit, a decent amount of time. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that was something like assuming that they can uh, travel about 60 miles per year mm-hmm. uh, or something, give or take. Um, now, mind you, that could be very different if we are inadvertently moving them around, which is basically how they got here in the first place, right? right. So these insects often get around places because, you know, uh, we're not paying special attention to border regulations. You know, we're saying, ah, who cares if I just bring a banana over the border, not knowing <laughs> that it might harbor some kind of devastating pest, right? Murder hornet. <laughs> like a murder hornet. Yeah. So Your bananas are full of murder hornets. Take home <laughs> message today. Take home message. Don't take, don't move bananas. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that is an interesting thing to think about too. Cause uh, one of the early articles I read as this started to be like, Oh man, is this, is this May's plague, you know, for this year or June's plague or whatever uh, was that they, they, yeah, they came over on, on, on ships, which is kind yeah. of funny mm-hmm. to think about, right? Like they're, yeah. they're pirate insects where this pirate is, murder hornets this is quickly coming off the rails um <laughs> but but no we inadvertently move species around all the time mm-hmm. and and sometimes it's you know not a, a huge deal we've talked about this before a little bit the possible consequences of introducing an invasive or um species without a native predator or or whatever and so yeah that that can be a huge thing right and yeah. uh, so you know, we talked about their effects on honeybees, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not necessarily like going around stabbing joggers or whatever. Uh, right. Though that For does the happen. Most part. Yeah. So they, they typically, like many wasps, are usually not aggressive unless provoked. Right. And it seems like there's two, uh, from what I have read, two main situations in which they may be considered uh, provoked. One is you disturb the nest. Hmm. Uh, intentionally or not. Secondly, might be, so they go through these different um, kind of general life history phases throughout the year. So it's thought that right now as fall time approaches, one of the phases they're about to go into is referred to as the slaughter phase. So this is when they're actually finding uh, honeybee colonies that they have decided they are going to absolutely slaughter. (laughs) And you can get anywhere between two or 20 to 30 hornets that will go in and just start decapitating honeybees, just start killing them. Uh, About 
one every 15 seconds or so. So wow. yeah, they've recorded. So there's this, um, this, uh, binomic sketch that's given by Matsura and Sakagami in 1973. And they say visits by 20, 30 Hornets usually result in deaths of 5,000 to 25,000 bees during one to six hours. So they are just like, and, and literally, wow. and when I say like slaughter, this is what's kind of crazy is, I mean, it's like they're just programmed to kill this moment because it's even been recorded in some cases that they will starve themselves to death because they're so busy slaughtering. Like they're not eating wow. the bees. Yeah, they're just busy decapitating and they can get so busy doing that that they can forget to eat. <laughs> huh. <laughs> so huh. when you're so busy with murder, murder, you yeah. lunch. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But that's that's crazy because we tend to think of most predators kill for food, right? Yeah. yeah. Like they're, they're killing with a directed purpose. And, and, you know, you think of like, say a lion, right? They're not just like wantonly murdering things. They, they kill for, for food and they'll yeah. kill relatively infrequently. Yeah. But it seems like these guys get going and they just keep going. So it's fun for them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, ultimately there is a purpose. Ultimately, they once they've killed off all of the worker bees and all the bees in there, they are then harvesting the larvae. That's oh. like the, the delicious food uh, and the highly nutritious that they're then carrying off uh, hmm. to feed their own brood. And so... Uh, you know, basically they, they wouldn't be able to do that very successfully if you have a bunch of like worker bees constantly attacking you. So that's why they just, at the beginning, they just start by eliminating all the worker bees. And once they've done that, then they will start to harvest. And, and this is when they go into what's called the occupation phase. And basically they have guards. They have a couple of these uh, Asian giant hornets that sit outside the hive and they now guard this new rich resources. It, it's no longer defended by honeybees. So they, they want to make sure like hmm. this is our gold mine and the other wasps come in and, and start harvesting and leaving. This is when they're also known to be a little bit aggressive towards people. So if huh. you see these guards outside the honeybee hive and you approach it, they are quite territorial in this phase and are thought to initially, they will fly around and make a clicking noise with their mandibles as a warning. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, it's kind of what I do when I'm trying to tell people to back off. Anyway. <laughs> it's real awkward at meetings. So that's when you know, don't, don't mess with them. Do not approach the hive. There are some bee suits that might protect you against them, but make sure that, you know, it's, it's a relatively thick one if you're approaching uh, a situation like that. Because that's where it can yeah. become potentially very dangerous yeah well that and that's that's interesting that uh and, and i guess that's true of a lot of insects right so so even honeybees are pretty chill in in general but the closer you get to the hive it, it, I, I read a study that there's an interesting gradient like the closer you get to the hive the more likely you are to be stung or or the more likely they are to be aggressive mm -hmm. because they're you know protecting home base yeah. but it's funny that like uh, they're like the, the, the murder hornets are like imperialists, right? So they come in and they like get rid of the people and they're like, now, now this is ours. Yeah. <laughs> now, don't, don't come near us Yeah, because we've taken over this. So you said that people can monitor for them, right? Mm -hmm. There's these, uh, citizen science programs where you can trap for them yeah. and, uh, everything else. So what is the, the USDA, 
or other regulatory agencies actually doing? So once we find out, okay, here's a hive, are they like being instantly destroyed? What, uh, what is kind of the protocol? So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure, but from my understanding right now is if they do find a hive, they are eradicating and or eliminating it. If they find mm-hmm. live hornets, uh, at this moment, they're trying to track them. So there's actually, hmm. um, it's kind of neat, just a few days, just maybe last week on October 2nd, a news article came out um, of a state entomologist that had finally caught a live hornet and I put a tracker on it. And with that tracker, they can use Whoa. an app on their phone to basically, tr- you know, follow them back to their nest. In this instance, it didn't work so well because they kind of gummed up their wings and the the the, the tracker did not quite stick. Uh, and mm. so that, that female was no longer able to fly. So they are still <laughs> uh, following this hornet, walking back to her nest. Uh, some <laughs> poor undergraduate student is just crawling behind this hornet, trying to stay inconspicuous. <laughs> That's not true. But You know yeah. what? Carl's in the lab and I have to crawl after a walking murder <laughs> hornet. <laughs> <laughs> Grad school is glorious and glamorous, folks. <laughs> What's really um, neat now, we did mention, you know, these murder hornets, how they will just decapitate and as- absolutely decimate uh, honeybees. And that's, that's, you know, of the major concern, especially there in California. Now, again, where the major uh, agricultural production is, it is thought that this hornet uh, will, will, will not really establish there because it's not ideal. It's a little bit drier. But uh, the reason why. Uh, or I should say, you know, in their native range in, in Japan, for example, um, the honeybees there are actually adapted to be able to defend against this Asian giant hornet. And I think, huh. I, I think you, you might already be familiar with this one. Yeah. So as soon as these honeybees are being attacked by uh, these murder hornets, the Asian giant hornet, it's before the slaughter. Usually it's uh, what they call this hunting phase. So you might get just a uh-huh. few of these hornets kind of coming in and out, grabbing just one honeybee. They will um, basically a bunch of them simultaneously jump on the Asian giant hornet and what's referred to as a hot defensive bee ball formation. <laughs> That's the technical, the technical oh, term for defensive it. bee ball. Yeah, which is consequently also the term I use when people want to mess with me. So anyway, so they all jump on the giant Asian hornet and they start vibrating simultaneously, uh, increasing the temperature just via kinetic energy to a temperature that is just above that which the giant hornet can can tolerate, which is about 45 degrees Celsius. And the honeybees are thought to be able to tolerate up to about 50 degrees Celsius. So they increase the temperature to about 46 degrees Celsius, maintain it for about 10 minutes, and cook that wasp alive. Now, there's been a recent study, which is kind of neat. This is back in 2018 by Yamaguchi et al., um, where they actually found that these honeybees that engage in this hot defensive bee ball formation, their longevity is actually drastically decreased. So they don't survive quite as long as a, huh. as a result. So it does actually harm them, but they can survive. And as soon as another giant hornet comes in, those ones that engaged in that hot defensive bee ball formation are more likely to re-engage in that hot defensive bee ball formation. And it's thought that it's, you know, basically to save the other workers from becoming short-lived. So it's. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's really kind of a a very interesting defensive mechanism that does not exist in our honeybees. And hence they're fully susceptible 
to this giant Asian hornet. That's fascinating. And so that that's a cool mechanism of coevolution, right? Mm-hmm. Of this coevolution, when these these hunting phases come through, obviously they want to kill the scouts, yeah. right? They don't want the scouts going back and being like, you know, not that wasps talk, but essentially like outing where these beehives are. And so the the first few that come in and carry off a few bees, I, I imagine it's, you know, if if a bee could think and there's evidence that they're pretty intelligent at least at a high level little little creatures uh you know workers start disappearing and then all of a sudden you know there's there's really some catastrophic things yeah absolutely and that's a really good point you know there is um you know i did an episode on my talking bugs uh, podcast about hive intelligence how the beehive Mm -hmm. As a, as a collective, all these individuals as a collective have uh, this emerging property of intelligence, right? Like they, they're almost like firing neurons together, uh, become this intelligence thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's pretty interesting. But yeah, so again, if only there was a way to teach our honeybees here, you know, like they might be thinking to themselves, like if only there was some kind of a bee ball formation that was hot that we could do to defend ourselves but they just it's on the tip of their proboscises and they can't quite get it yeah almost Um, there maybe maybe one day they'll get there but maybe they won't have to i guess you know and that's and that is a a good plug for i think citizen science efforts Mm -hmm. as a kind of a tangent to this is um you know as researchers and as uh ag agencies we only have so much manpower yeah and so like if it was just us trying to do or just these group of researchers trying to do all the trapping tracking and work it's unlikely that they would ever get out ahead of this problem but using um the people that actually live there to help with trapping and help with all these things there's there's a much greater chance that we give positive results and that we can actually maybe get out in front of this uh invasion so to speak. Absolutely. Uh, so that's so that's kind of a little quick update on the Asian giant hornet that I think is maybe a little bit positive. You know, again, that their distribution sure. is perhaps is going to be a little bit limited um, and that there are a lot of efforts uh, to, to actually trap and identify where they are. So now take us to the wetter taxidermy. <laughs> the wet taxidermy of plants. So, okay, there's this... Um, process in plants called guttation. And so this paper that we're looking at um, was published by Royal Society Publishing. Essentially what they, the, they were looking at was whether plant guttation actually provides nutrient-rich food for insects or if it's just a uh, moisture source. So what guttation is, is there are little openings on the edges of the leaves on several species of plants on actually quite a few species of plants um, called hydathodes. And in the right environmental conditions and the right soil water status and plant water status conditions, uh, they'll actually form these little droplets of water along the leaf margins. And it happens primarily in the morning. Um, There's a lot of thoughts about why this happens, but uh, essentially it's, it's, it could be just to shed ex- excess water to balance out the turgor pressure in the plants and all these things. But regardless, all these little droplets of water form along the leaves of plants. Um, and what has been well observed over time is that insects will visit these hydathodes, especially early in the morning and drink these 
plant fluids that kind of leak out and not just herbivores, but uh, everything from wasps to spiders to all kinds of other things. will use this as a water source, but what hasn't really been studied, um, you know, prior to this is whether there's actually a um, secondary benefit uh, to the insects that are visiting these plants. And so what they looked at is, are there carbohydrates and other compounds in these um, water droplets that may be beneficial to insect populations? I worked on high-bush blueberries for my master's, and we sometimes call them extra floral nectaries. And I was working with parasitic wasps of aphids. So they lay eggs in aphids. They eat the aphid inside out. Uh, and then there's nothing left but the carcass of the aphid. They metamorphose into a wasp like the movie Alien. Uh, but they would frequently visit. I even have some nice photos of uh, the, a wasp's head through the actual floral nectary, you know, so it's all like kind of blown up and big. Cause it's just this droplet of water. Yeah. Uh, but they would uh, frequently visit these actual floral nectaries. And so I guess, th- you know, these researchers were investigating whether, um, you know, these nectaries were anything more than just water, if they had some other kind of benefit. And uh, I think this is of particular relevance and importance because I think when we're thinking about what kinds of plants to put in our landscape, what are important for beneficial insects or pollinators, we're usually focusing on flowering plants or, right. or you know, a flowering plant, but only when it's in bloom. And this paper I, I thought was very interesting because it shows how important uh, these extra floral nectaries or these gutations, these, these uh, nectars mm-hmm. outside of the flower are in, you know, they increase the longevity. Uh, we saw fruit flies, parasitic wasps, and predators like Chrysoperla, which is our, our green lacewings, which are our, some excellent mm-hmm. predators. Uh, and they also even increase like the number of eggs with the egg load produced by these different groups. And so they play a very important role, I guess, in actually promoting uh, these populations. Which is, which is really very interesting because we talk about... Um, Sometimes maintain, like like you just said, we maintain flowers in season and it's like, oh, this is great. But th- there is a potential and I'm, I think, you know, a lot of my work is in terms of the urban landscape. Yeah. And a lot of times we won't really do much irrigation of some of our plants during the off season, right? So it's like, ah, when it starts flowering, when really things start going, um, we'll start watering and then it's good for the pollinators and all that, which is true. Uh, but there's, there's also a case to be made looking at some of this data. If we're interested in maintaining populations of some of our pollinators and beneficials that we provide even off season irrigation and off season moisture to our plants to create situations where maybe the water status is maintained. And these, uh, this process of getation can still happen even when it's, you know, cooler out and all of that. That's that's kind of a tangent, but it it makes me think from a management standpoint of uh, maybe thinking about the way we tend to irrigate and the seasons in which we tend to irrigate. Yeah. So another interesting thing is when you look at figure six, they were looking at how this gutation might impact population dynamics uh, or abundance right. of different species. And so they set out traps uh, near plants that either had gutation or did not have the gutation. Right. And they find, let's say, an increase in parasitic wasps. They also find uh, a decrease in the number of aphids, which might, or in this case, winged aphids, which might not be a surprise if you have an increase in the number of parasitic wasps. So they might be providing some increase suppression. Mm-hmm. They also get a decrease in the number of uh, mosquitoes, which is quite nice. 
So again, that yeah. might be because it's promoting some kind of uh, predators of mosquitoes that then uh, causes a decrease in the number of mosquitoes being caught in the traps. So they have these um, pretty uh, pretty major kind of ecological impact on all these different organisms. And this is just of the ones that they trapped just from having these uh, gutations on, on the leaves. Yeah, re- really, really fascinating to think about. We talk about plant defense uh, mechanisms and, and types of um, uh, suppression from you know, plant predation. And this is, this is a pretty unique one. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked in previous episodes about, oh, the plants uh, produce all these defense compounds and all of this. But there, again, we've talked before about how there's evidence that let's bring in as many predators of our predators as, as possible. Like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Right. And so by providing these, these sources for, uh, parasitic wasps and others that, yeah, there, there may be a real chance that they're getting meaningful suppression of their, um, of their predators of these other herbivorous. So pests. I think you raise a very interesting point, And this is kind of where my head was going in terms of plant defense, uh, because this got me thinking about the impact of systemic insecticides on gutation mm-hmm. and thus the predators and or parasitic wasps that feed on that gutation. Because a lot of our systemic insecticides have been focused on you know, how much of it actually makes it into the nectar or the pollen of the flower and thus how does it impact pollinators. But there's not been a whole lot of done. There is some, but not a whole lot of work done on how it impacts uh, levels in the gutation. But there's one study mm-hmm. uh, as an example by Larson et al., which was published in 2015, which found that grass, like turf, right? That, you know, you wouldn't think is a source of nutrition for any type of predator, right? <laughs> it's like, right. Um, right. But this, you know, when they drench with imidacloprid, uh, which is a type of insect, uh, systemic insecticide, that imidacloprid uh, showed up in the gutation of those leaves at levels for at least one week at levels that are potentially considered harmful to aureus, which is an excellent predatory insect that can frequently be found in, in the turf. And so right. uh, n- now they did find, you know, if you mow shortly thereafter, you can help drastically decrease the amount of minocloprid that's in that gutation, right? So there are right. ways of subverting or decreasing. It's very interesting because the more and more we learn, you know, there was just a, a recent article uh, released. Uh, let's see, this is in September, end of September. So again, just about a week ago, uh, where low doses of imidacloprid could cause blindness in insects. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. And so it's like, well, <laughs> shoot, because, you know, a lot of this has been focused on, say, LD50, like lethal dosage that causes right. 50% mortality. But how, what are, you know, I'd say just in the last few years, there's been a lot more focus on what are some of the sublethal effects, you know, the effects that it does not kill the insect, but might decreases the chance of survival, decreases its uh, predation. Now, this study in particular was looking at fruit flies. So that's not, you know, they're not considered predators, but they're using it as a model organism. So, and what's very interesting is they use field realistic doses. So in the field, you can get concentrations of about 2,800 parts per million of imidacloprid, 
Whereas in the lab, it can be a little bit closer to what they tested was 2.5 parts per million. And they got those uh, greatly decreased um, movement of fly larvae by about 50% just after two hours of exposure. Right. So again, this kind of raises this very interesting question, at least in my head, right? Because um, I've been an advocate of systemic insecticides because they're only going to basically kill the things that feed on them, which are usually going to be herbivores, right? That are feeding on the plant. Right. Uh, but now you have this case where it might get into the guttation, which is directly going to your predators right. and or your parasitic wasps, yeah. which might inadvertently be um, creating a bigger problem. That is, Yeah, in- that's very interesting. And I think this is also a very good point that, like you said, the more we learn maybe the more we realize we still have to learn. And that's, I guess that's the process of science in general, but um, we should be studying um, some of these secondary consequences or secondary uh, effects of some of our herbicides and insecticides and other products that we're putting out. Because we we do think about a lot, oh, you go out and you spray an insecticide and in some cases, it makes the problem worse. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's that's very yeah, interesting. I mean, there's an actual term for that called the pesticide treadmill. Oh, okay. And so the idea, yeah, that when you spray a pesticide that you might inadvertently create a second problem, then then requires another pesticide, which then, you know, inadvertently, you know, so on and so forth. Next thing you know, you're hanging clothes in your treadmill because you have no time to actually use it because you're <laughs> spraying pesticides. <laughs> cascade, cascade effects. Cascade effects. Cascade effects. Yeah. Well, that's all I had to say about gutation. I don't know. Do you have anything else to, to talk about on that paper? Uh, no, that, I mean, I think that covered pretty much the high points. It is just, it's very interesting uh, to see how all of these plant exudates are used across species. I, I just think it's a interesting commensalism there that that we get to see in a, in a variety of ways. Absolutely. No part of the plant is wasted. You know, the plant, uh, it's very interesting just thinking about the relationship between plants and insects and Every little thing that uh, might just seem random or might not seem important actually is. Uh, and it, we don't find out until we really study it. Yeah. So uh, I think that's it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for another episode of Jolly Green Scientists. My name is Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. I hope you all have a nice fortnight and we'll talk to you again soon.